Hello, and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine, and today I'm joined by Seb Stafford-Bloor. Hi, Joe. Hello, how are you? I'm very well. Good. Uh, we were joined today by Ed Ahrens, uh, who is an exciting young journalist, the age of 39. Uh, <laughs> that's not a good way to start, is it? It doesn't even mean anything. He recently wrote the book Made in Africa, the history of African players in English football. Uh, and whilst I've only read the first half of the first chapter, I already know it's brilliant uh, because Seb's read the whole thing and told me it is. Yeah, it, it is. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, we, we won't cover the ground that we've, um, we've gone over in the um, in the chat um it's so interesting it's um tell me about ed's credentials well actually i'll tell you a personal ed story um i covered my first tournament um with ed aaron's so it sounds like a personal seb story i don't know you you, you know you know how vain i am and you know how i like to kind of twist things to make them really (laughs) about me um but he was um he's one of the senior journalists out in poland when i did the um under 21 final uh, under 21 euros and you sort of helped me with things like mix zones and uh and print deadlines and stuff. So he's a, he's a good man at Aaron's, but he's, he's written a, a, an excellent book. Um, I like to think of myself as a fairly well-educated person on uh, football matters, but I learned so much. Um, and it was really interesting to chat to him about and, and find out some extra detail and, um, you know, just to, just to hear some of his perspectives on the more general issues which afflict African players and um, development from, you know, in African football and, and longevity and the way players are remembered. It's, it's a great chat. I really enjoyed it. Uh, the book comes out on the 1st of June, I believe, and I'm sure you can buy it from all reputable sources if they aren't closed uh, as a result of lockdown. But you can buy them uh, online. Yeah? Go to the websites where they sell them. I'm sure it's on Amazon. I bet it's on the publisher's website, published by Arena Sport. Uh, and um, also you'll see it on Ed Aaron's Twitter account. But um, basically we would encourage you to to buy it and read it, not only because you will undoubtedly enjoy it and learn lots of stuff, but also because uh, it's, it's it's great to support work like this, isn't it, Seb? I mean, it's important work. Yeah, and also, like, you know, having actually read the book, I feel like my testimony is worth a little more than yours. Yeah, go on. <laughs> no, definitely read it. It's, um, yeah, it's called Made in Africa, Algin the First, and... Um, You'll learn a lot about, I think the players obviously and the, you know, the, all the different chapters are based around a different story. Um, but you also learn a lot about England uh, during those periods of time um, and, you know, through the way that some of these guys were treated and it may not be the easiest read, but it's an important one and a really, really compelling one. So, yeah, we don't, we don't really have a, um, a recommendation metric at TIFO. We don't have like five TIFOs or, you know or, you know, three Philippes or whatever. So um, we'll just say, go and read it. That's probably the best way of putting it. <laughs> we, we used to. We should do. We should do. Like a couple, you know, it, it gets 10 Craigs or one Alex. It used know, to be. So. I remember before before we started making videos like the form we do now, uh, we used to make sort of silly review videos. And I remember uh, giving giving one film about football, three and a half lion wombs. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that didn't catch on then. No, and it doesn't <laughs> matter now. Anyway, head to your head to your local Amazon and buy this book by Ed Aaron's Made in Africa: The History of African Players in English Football. Incidentally, if you're in the buying mood, you should buy a subscription to the Athletic. Look at me flog. Look at me flog. That's right. Theathletic.com nice. forward slash 
TIFO. Uh, it's now the best way to support TIFO. If you appreciate what we do and you like us and you enjoy listening and watching to us, it does that, that doesn't make sense. Do please go and get yourself a free trial at The Athletic because it appears as a little number for me and for internal machinations, it gives me power. So please do that. Uh, also, the content is exceptionally good, and that's the main reason that you should do it. That's what I'm supposed to mention in the advert. But you'll get a free trial, so just do it. Okay, uh, thanks for downloading today's episode, um, and uh, thanks to Seb for asking all the questions. Uh, I'm not really in it, to be honest, not until the end. Uh, and, of course, first, uh, mainly, I should say, thank you to Ed Ahrens for, uh, for attending. And now it's in his hands that we leave you. love the book. I mean, I, I'd be lying if I said that um, there were bits that I didn't find really quite harrowing. Um, but uh, I learned an awful lot from it. Um, not just about the players and the, the stories that you tell, but also um, the attitudes that they experienced. I, th- I felt like I learned an awful lot about my own country during the different decades, which I didn't really appreciate before. Um, so it's um it's it's not an easy read but it's um it's it's a brilliant really well told story in many different parts can you just take us back to the beginning though um where did your interest from where did your interest in african football come from well thank you very much for that it's really kind of you to say so first of all but um yeah so it's really from the very from the very start of liking football i'm uh, well i'm 39 so uh, just turned 39 and it was really when I was sort of nine or ten years old that we started having the first African players coming into the Premier League after, obviously, the uh, England v Cameroon quarterfinal at the uh, 1990 World Cup. And that's probably, well, possibly one of my favourite games, certainly a game I'll always remember. And that really, I think, was the trigger for me to have an interest in African football, but I was very young at that age. But then over the years, players like, uh, you know, Peter and Love and, Tony Yaboa and uh, Lucas Radaby sort of really captured my interest uh, uh, as growing up. And I think there's, there's a lot of people in my sort of generation who, who hopefully will feel the same that, you know, the, the, these players who we hadn't heard of or seen people like them before in, in our game suddenly had come over and made a real impact um, in, in quite a short time. So that was really where it began for me. But, um, you know, uh, and I've continued that into my professional career uh, as a journalist and, I lived in South Africa for a couple of years uh, before and during and after the, the 2010 World Cup. Got to lo- know a lot of people over there and a lot of people in African football and just still lo- absolutely love it. You know, I say in the book, um, I was there for the Ghana v Uruguay uh, famous quarterfinal. So, you know, many years on from, uh, well, what is it, 30 years on from, from my childhood and the Cameroon quarterfinal was actually there in person for the, you know, the famous Luis Suarez handball and everything. And I say in the book, actually, that and it's, it's true, you know, that I really felt that. I really felt so upset, you know, as much as any England defeat. And I'm a massive England fan as well. But, you know, when Ghana went out, you know, the whole of the continent, almost the whole of the world, perhaps, was, was in their corner. And uh, I really took that hard. And I realised, you know, how much I, I might, you know, I love African football, really. And then, uh, so since that point, really, I was looking to do something like this because, it's just looking around the the landscape. Really, there's nothing to 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 record some of the impact that these players have had, especially you know some of the stories that they've had to 
overcome and you know disadvantages and and racism and all sorts of things and there was nothing out there um to to chronicle it really and i thought well no one else is going to do it then then i'm going to do it because i know a lot about african football and i may not be african myself but i think it's something that is you know very important to have uh, in in our game you know the history of our game did you find when you when you took your first steps to um cover african football so this deal specifically with kind of 2010 and your, your move to South Africa. Did you find, I mean, I, I'll, I'll lay this out um, from a personal perspective, African football fascinates me, but it also intimidates me a little bit in terms of the idea of, I, I've got a really sort of closed off Western attitude, um, which is presumably typical of Europeans, in that kind of, if I was to cover an African uh, Cup of Nations, um, I wouldn't know where to start in terms of planning my reporting trip. Um, like, do you remember, like, I first met you in Poland when we were out there in 2017, I think. And it's kind of, it's easy, isn't it? You catch the flight here and you, you book your, your accommodation there. And I, I've, I've spoken to a lot of people that, that feel the same way in that you kind of, it's almost a little bit of a barrier to entry in that you, you feel, I don't know, it's a, it's a yeah, intimidating is, is probably the best, best way to describe it. Is that something you had to overcome or did you just, did you just not feel that at all? No, I know exactly what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. I, I, and certainly when I worked in South Africa, it was quite a... I enjoyed the experience of being in the minority. You know, if you grow up in... Even if you grow up in London and you, as a white person, say, you know, you're, you're in the majority. You don't really know what it's like to be one of the three or four black kids in the class or something like that. You know what I mean? And, but Precisely in that, South Africa, yeah. I'd, go to, I'd go to matches and in the stadium there'd be me maybe a couple of players, a couple of reporters, and pretty much everybody else would be black. And that was, that was, quite, a, that was quite an eye-opening experience for me, just to experience the other side of you know, being in a minority uh, in, in some respect. And also, yeah, it is more of a step into the unknown as well with, with a lot of these places that you have to go to. But it's, I, I really enjoy that. And, and especially, you know, I went to the African Nations Cup in uh, Egypt in the, in the summer, last summer, and that was such a great experience uh, just to see all the, the passion for the game there. Although, you know, it's very difficult to get in the ground and stuff. It's sort of, we had to get there like three and a half hours at least before kickoff and the security guards were, wouldn't let you in even if you had a press pass and things like that. But I think that the key is in those sort of situations, like anywhere really, is just to stay calm and, in, and enjoy the experience. And in fact, most people who see you there are, are not, not grateful, is the wrong word, but, you know, really pleased that you've made the effort to, you know, get out of your comfort zone. Yeah, it's interesting because I remember um, I remember seeing a tweet from I think it was Nick Ames, um, brilliant journalist, obviously that we all know. Um, but I remember him saying I think he was out, he was out there too for Egypt, and he said, um, "You know, this would be such a fantastic opportunity for a young journalist." And he was absolutely right. I just remember thinking I can understand why people don't do that, and I can also understand why people appreciate appreciated it, appreciate it when when sort of English journalists or European journalists do make the effort to leave that comfort zone because it's kind of you don't. I, I suppose it's, it's really easy not to appreciate how easy we all have it here in terms of Premier League access. You turn up, there's your food, there's your press pass. Hello, there's a security guard that you already know. Um, it's just really interesting. It's, it's something actually I'd love to do. But actually, I'd like anyway. to just I'd like to just like to say quickly. Uh, you know, you get a lot more if if you get to know people. You get such more much more coverage uh, and, and uh, the opportunity. The yeah, the yeah the opportunity to to speak to players like in so when I lived in South Africa we used to call up players all the time and there's no there, there was a bit of you know press media barrier but 
really things are a lot closer there. And uh, I mean, I, I think they're trying to make it a bit more European in style, but that would, I think that would take away some of the heart and soul of it if that happens, to be honest. So, so do you mean there's a world where there isn't a press officer recording two different versions when you're doing an interview? I can't, I can't imagine that. Well, no, you, a world where you can actually call up, yeah, you can actually call them up on their phone and get quotes, just, you know. We should do a podcast about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. Let's dive into the book. Um, let's start with um, a player that most of us know. Most of the people you even haven't read the book will be aware of, hopefully. Uh, Albert Johannesson. Um, a there's a sentence in your book which really took me back, um, which really startled me a little bit. In so, Thomas Singer and Lucas Radibi have have just arrived at Leeds United, um, and obviously, Albert Johannesson, first black player to play an FA Cup final in 1965. I'd always assumed that that had translated into to some kind of cachet in South Africa, some sort of um, fame or celebrity or idolisation. And neither Miss Singer or Radibi had ever heard of him. I found that, I found that extraordinary. Yeah, well, I think that he was. I mean, he was known about in South Africa. Certainly, when, especially when he went, it was pretty, pretty well trumpeted in the press because uh, one, of, you know, there was there was started at that time. Actually, it was starting to become a bit of a, a stream of players because you had you'd had Steve McConey and Jerry Francis already who'd had varying degrees of success. But Jerry Francis in particular were at uh, Leeds had done well. And uh, that's when Albert came in. So he was he, he was signed at kind of for kind of great fanfare, but I think was quickly forgotten in South Africa because he he faded from public life and became, you know, turned into this guy who, who was an alcoholic and was beaten up by the police regularly and very, oh, it's absolutely awful uh, what happened to him. Let's... Yeah, I mean, for people who don't know about the end of Abby Hansen's life, that is a very tough read, and I won't, I won't tread on the toes of your book. But let's go to 1965 and the hours before the FA Cup final. Um, I'm essentially going to ask you to paraphrase your own book, which is quite weird, but that is a very difficult passage to read um, in terms of what it says about British society at the time. Um, at a point in history where we kind of thought, well, looking back, people like me, who are naive seemingly, um, think, yes, we're quite open-minded and liberal. Uh, and in reality, a black player is waiting the Wembley Tunnel to, um, you know, at what should be the apex of his career, to play an FA Cup final, to make history. Um, and he's being barraged by um, racist chanting, so much so that he asked Don Revy not to play. Um can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, well, the for, for the Albert Johansson chapter, I spoke in great detail to his uh, biographer. Uh, he's called Paul Harrison. And he was a big big Leeds fan uh, who sort of grew up watching Albert. And, and a lot of the memories are, are taken from Albert's direct interviews with, with Paul. So, uh, and Paul always stressed to me that, that Albert felt that, you know, everybody remembered him for that day. 1965 FA Cup final against Liverpool uh, and that's how he was known the first black player the first African player but actually for for Albert it sounds like it was really the almost the worst day of his life which just sounds so sad and I'm, I, people it's really difficult to get your head round round that why that would be but you know, when when you read what the the sort of the circumstances he had to deal with and the, the environment he had to 
playing and you could, it's no wonder really is it that that he was just filled with trepidation and dread about stepping out on that pitch uh, even though he knew he had the ability which is the really sad thing I found um, we're talking non 65 cup final there's um, there are two things that sort of really um, stood out firstly the story about how I think it was a cup final against Sheffield Wednesday Leeds United travelled to Hillsborough and there was a steward there I, I forget the year apologies but there was a steward outside Hillsborough who didn't want to let Johansson into the ground um, and only did so because Billy, Billy Bremner threatened him um, that was I, I'd never heard that before um, and it's kind of it's something that you associate with the Jackie Robinson area Brooklyn Dodgers um, which was obviously many years before so it was quite um, it's quite a, a stark realisation um, and a horrible thing to read but also I, th- I think um, I never appreciated the um, the treatment that Johansson received on the pitch there's a story that you tell about um, him being kicked to pieces during a game and him sort of seemingly quite politely saying to the referee hang on you know um, I'm being punched and kicked and, and the referee being not necessarily ambivalent towards it, but just sort of, well, what do you expect? You know, you're different. Um, I found that, that was extraordinary. Yeah, and it's just, it, it just sums up the attitudes at the time. And uh, I think you'll find it, uh, especially in all the early chapters in the book, you know, Arthur Walton had to deal with all this in from actually uh, in, the, in the mainstream press as well. Back then, they weren't afraid to use that sort of, you know, really shocking language that today, you know, you'd be, you'd be arrested for, but this was being used by national newspapers. So it's a theme, obviously. And, and, and unfortunately, um, as we've seen in recent times, that still hasn't gone away. Um, and unfortunately, that is a theme of the book. You know, it goes all the way through. I try not to put in too many references, but I think it's important to have some things like this just to show you, you know, to show people what it was actually like and what, what normality was in, in those days. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm obviously reticent to say it on a podcast. I, I, some of the, some of the, um, some of the press clippings are toe curling. It's incredible. I, I mean, I and I, I mean that in the genuine sense of the word. It is um, uh, the way he was referred to, um, and actually the way another player. Let's move on to Steve McConey because the same is really true of him um, in terms of how he was referenced by the press and um, the language that was used to describe his performance by, you know, what were the sort of the columnists of the day. Um, firstly, okay, so give it, give us the cliff notes on who, who Steve McConey was, because it's going to be, it's one of my favourite chapters in the book, but it's, it's pretty convoluted. Yeah, it's a very long story, and believe me, to get it into one chapter it was, was quite a challenge, because I've done a lot of work on this, uh, this otherwise. Um, so he was the first South African black player, anyway, to play in English football, and he came into to Coventry in 1955, and it... The thing is, he only played a very small number of games. He also played for, ended up playing for Cardiff and Barnsley, but again, very briefly. Um, but it's more the sort of... the <laughs> Some of the myths that have sprung up around Steve McConey, if you're not aware of them, then it's worth looking on... Uh, well, it's worth reading the book, obviously, but if you want a quick, <laughs> just a quick look, just have a look at him on the, online, and there's lots of stuff written about him. But But the gist of it really is that he after his career, uh, moved to America and uh, ended up in prison for, um, well, for two two things. One was orchestrating an attack on his wife. 
sorry, on his wife's attorney uh, with acid, and then also attacking his his ex-wife with acid, and he got sentenced to tw- uh, for twelve years in in prison, which he served the majority, including being in Attica prison uh, in the sa- in the same cell block as Reuben Hurricane Carter, and um, then he came out of prison and was sort of living a quiet life, and then just before, sorry, just after he died, his um, his daughter said that she was sexually abused by him and sort of basically disabused a uh, a conspiracy theory that he'd been set up by the CIA in America. So as you can see, it's quite a long, long story that uh, that is the, the end point. But um, yeah, lots of lots of interesting details in there, included, which a lot of the stuff, again, came from his autobiography, his own autobiography, which really has to be to be read to be believed. Right. Well, this is my next question. So with that chapter, it's probably the first time I felt like this when reading a book in a long time. It was like re- reading about two different people. <clears throat> Sorry, got a bit of a... Doing too much podcasting, my voice is going. <laughs> but it was like we went from this um, this timid guy who um, the first night he stays in England, he's um, he's staying in a hotel in, in Piccadilly in London and um, he puts out his shoes where he he just the maid comes and takes his shoes and she's white and he thinks she's stolen my shoes um because he's just that dynamic is so alien to him and then you go through his career and he is um unfortunately subject to all the usual prejudices and the treatment all the things that we've just described about Albert Johansson um and then within a couple of paragraphs it's this incredibly sinister tone but then mixed in with like you say a lot of the detail from his autobiography which makes him sound like a bit of a Walter Mitty character. Um, just there's, there's when you when you talk about, you know, him, him claiming to have played for Barcelona and you 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 contacting Barcelona to try and verify it. It's extraordinary stuff. Yeah, and, and, and one of my other one of the the other favourite stories that he used to tell was he had this nickname that he'd been given by an Italian journalist that he was the Maserati of soccer because he scored five goals in one game for Torino. And I mean, he, he, the thing is, it was sort of half, there were lots of half truths in there. You know, he he was on the books of Torino, but um, it seems that this picture that he always claimed of him, him scoring five goals was a from a reserve team match. You know, I spoke to historians at Torino, and it was always it, it was quite interesting actually getting the when I said his name to them, they were like, ah, yes, and they sort of laughed about it. And you know, there's a it's known as in Italy, it's known as the myth, the the myth, the Maconi. Um, uh, you know, and he said he won the 1959 European Player of the Year, which not sure what he would have said about that. Uh, it's and, and the thing is, in South Africa, it, this is the really the, one of the themes of the book uh, as well. Um, the way that people are portrayed, and they want, or you know, either they want to portray themselves or are portrayed by other people. And in the, in McConey's case, you know, he has massaged his image incredibly over the years before you know even <clears throat> after his career was long after his career was over he was really proactive in trying to push this these myths that he played for Barcelona and all this stuff you know I've got lots of lots of correspondence he's had with various journalists over the years about you know Barcelona and, and things like this and he's and also his Juventus at one point or something wasn't um, there that he uh, he was at Marseille as well uh, but that's yeah. that's true that's true as well but the thing is he he was on the, and I think that's the thing to say about it it's rather than being too judgmental about him as well I don't want to be 
to say that you know he was a he was a bad man or anything like that because he was absolutely a, a pioneer and in another world in a more fair world perhaps he would have been a superstar playing for Barcelona you know uh, or maybe not Barcelona at the time because they couldn't sign foreign players at the time but you, you know you get my point if yeah. if if it'd been a, a level playing field he certainly had the talent because by all accounts you know I speak to Bobby Gould who watched him as a child when he was at Coventry and then obviously went on to manage Coventry twice and play for them um, and he he was you know still remembers him. He was transfixed by this guy. He was looked different to everybody else, but was also you know an amazing player. So this is the thing. It's it, it's a very it's also a very sad story. And you know that he felt he had to embellish like that. I think so. A, t- a tough question then with all of these details in. So um, the nature of what he did achieve versus kind of the um, the massaging of his own legend and the sort of the way he. Um, the way his life ended. He died in 2015, is that right? That's right, yeah. Yeah. What is, what, what's the legacy of a, um, of a player like that? Because it's quite, I mean, it, it's, it's fairly opaque as a story and it's kind of, it's not something with, with any great clarity. So what's his place in the game today? Well, in South Africa, he's very much still very, very popular, very, and he's held up as a pioneer, which is correct. He should be. But not, I. you know, this book is going to, Cause a few problems in South Africa, maybe, but there's a lot of people I believe that that you know know that know the full story and know it has been embellished. embellished. But yeah, um, he is he like right, rightly seen as a as a pioneer from South Africa. But unfortunately, his third wife last year has re, has done a, a new book which um, has all the myths in. So, and that was you know she did oh, the rounds in okay. South Africa so last year so. You know, the also the, the thing to say is, you know, he, he's obviously passed away and he can't defend himself, and that's fair enough. But I just wanted to tell the the full story of uh, of him really because it is so remarkable. Um, and just obviously his daughter as well. She she wanted her side of the story to be told, and we did a few press articles about it at the time. Um, and uh, she, yeah, I just thought it was it was fair to hear the other side of the story as well. No, I, I mean, I think your telling is really fair. It's really balanced. I mean, it's just, it's one of those chapters, and I mean this in the best possible way. It's one of those chapters that when you finish, you immediately start again. Because it's, his life is extraordinary. Um, and there's nothing predictable about the story. Okay, so in the, begin, in the beginning, you can see the racism and the prejudice that he suffers. You know that's coming, unfortunately. Um, but then the the passage of his life is uh, is unbelievable. Um I mean, well, just to say, sorry, I, 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 I'm no, just going to tell you this, I think, because it's worth it. I, I actually, before I wrote this book, I wrote a whole book about Stephen Coney. And um, so there's a lot more to it, let me put it that way. But I, I could only fit in a certain amount. I've spoken to so many people to do with the case. I've spoken to the district attorney in America, who was uh, actually the first female district attorney in America, and she was on the, on the case. Um, that convicted him. I spoke to his cellmate in Attica. I've spoken to psychologists and at length to various other people, but it was very hard to find a publisher in England. No one really was that interested. So there we go. Well, I'm going to buy that book. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody's, if anybody, anybody's interested, then... Well, let's give that a plug. What's that yeah. book called? Uh, it's called Kalamazoo. 
Okay. Which was his okay. nickname. Well, um, that's going to be the rest of my week, I think, because that's uh, this guy is. Uh, well, if you want me to send story. it to you, I've got it on my. <laughs> my hey man, no, listen, you sent me one book already this week, so I, I will, I, I will buy the next one. It's okay. Oh, well, um, no, I, I, like I say, I would love that story to be told in full because, as I said, I, unfortunately, I mean, I'm not shortchanging people in the in the book within in Made in Africa with it because I'm, in you know, introducing him, but there's a lot. There is a lot more to it. So let's move on to Christopher Ray. Um, so younger fans will remember him um, sporadically at Arsenal um, scored one of the sweetest hits I've ever seen at the Reebok Stadium actually um, but there's a, a point in his career where um, he's obviously George Weah's second cousin um, and when Weah was at um, Monaco with Arsene Wenger I mentioned to him look I you know lots of talented friends and relatives back home who I played you know national team football with um, and Wenger said to him, OK, we'll, we'll bring them over, but bring them over one at a time. And if they're good enough, we'll have a look. Um, that it was interesting because um, it shows that the pipelines um, for African players, certainly African players for Liberia in certain countries, um, you know, didn't actually exist in the way that um, they probably should have at that point. Because all the players we've spoken about, irrespective of you know, their personal lives and the difficulties they experienced, um, they were uniquely talented footballers. So why is it that it took so long for kind of a, a proper, not scouting, but a proper system to exist whereby um, European clubs, and remember this is post, post-Italian post 90s, so Cameroon has happened, we've seen them break the glass ceiling. Um, why is it that even then there was this sort of, there was this reticence around the continent um, or about around certain parts of the continent? I think that uh, certainly in Europe they were much quicker on the uptake than we were in England, and and that's still the case today. And a lot, well, I mean, a lot today is to do with work permits as well. So that's one problem for English clubs. You know that you, you can't it, you can't really get someone straight from Africa these days because they need to be a <clears throat> they need to be an international player, and to be an international player, you kind of have to be overseas nowadays. But back then, yeah, you know, clubs in, in Belgium particularly, I'm thinking uh, Daniel Amakachi and uh, Divock Origi's dad came to Belgium in the early 90s and, and so they did create that pathway. But, um, and in France as well, they were very, you know, very quick to, and it dates back a long, a long way back to, you know, Just Fontaine at the 1958 World Cup was from Morocco. And they so there was a pipeline in, and Portugal as well, obviously, in the nineteen the nineteen sixty six teams, I think it had three players born in Angola and Mozambique, obviously, including Eusebio. So there was there was a pipeline, but for some reason, England and its Commonwealth, as it you know was known, was very <laughs> slow. Was very slow to have that sort of pipeline, even for I mean, there were there was a bit of one for Caribbean players, wasn't there in the in the seventies? It started happening, but for African players, it just Aside from the, those so the South Africans that we talked about, then it just dried up uh, for black players in in uh, from Africa anyway, in, um, in the UK, and it's it's a shame. And I think even now, still the English clubs are quite slow. You know, they they tend to buy African players that are the finished product rather than taking a risk on a young African player like they do in Europe. There still seem to be some of the some of the pejorative attitudes as well. Of course, like West Ham. Um, 18 months ago sacked their uh, head of recruitment um, for what he said and people can Google that let's not repeat that but um, it seems like a lot of this prejudice I mean it's, it's amazing actually if you think about as a collective if you think about the talent that's come out of Africa um, 
over just over the last sort of 20 years. Um, it's amazing that some of these attitudes survive. Um, this kind of wariness is bizarre. Well, I don't want to ruin the uh, the end of the book. No. But I have a great interview with a guy called Sayasek, who who set up uh, Diam- the Diambars Academy with uh, you know the Patrick Vieira funded academy in in Senegal, and um, he sort of explained that they produce so many good players. Half of the Senegal squad, the other half is from Generation Foot, which I have a lot about in the book as well. The uh, where where Sadio Mane came from. They produce pretty much, you know, the whole of the Senegal's national team because they're the. There's a lot. They're expanding now, but um, they're the two big academies there, and they, they just show you how, you know, the possibilities for Africa. Africa, if if they could get, you know, say with ten of those academies in Senegal, the number of players that could be produced. But still, he tells me that the respect isn't there. So when he has a a top seventeen year old, you know, they own they own the players because they're a club as well. So when a European club comes in and they never offer, you know, what they offer Brazilian teenagers, you know, like he said, the top Brazilian teenager goes for 50 million euros, but we get offered half a million euros for our best player. And he thinks that it's still, you know, almost a legacy of kind of slavery, really, that Africa isn't respected, Africa isn't an equal partner in the football industry. And it's, you know, Africa should be grateful for what it gets. But the reality is that Africa produces like as many players as almost anywhere now. So, and you know, hopefully attitudes will start to change when people you just look at the top scorers last season in the Premier League, for example. So I won't, um, I won't spoil the story, but for anyone who sort of wants to read a little bit more about um, that valuation issue, um, the story about Peter Endlove and uh, how his agent became his agent and the first contract then they negotiated together. That's um that's a really good illustration of it because it's kind of this is this is what we think we can get away with paying the African player versus what what is the kind of the average for that talent in the rest of the country. I think that was um absolutely that was that was very interesting. Yeah, yeah, that was, no, what, I agree. Nineteen ninety two, ninety one when that yeah, happened. It was ninety two, and he was Peter and Love. Just a quick summary of it: he was wanted by pretty much every club in in the country at the time. He'd scored a sorry, this was before he scored a hat trick against Liverpool, but he'd scored it. In a win over Arsenal, we were the champions at Highbury, and eleven goals, I think, in his second season in England, which even you know is fantastic. Today, imagine how much a player like that would be worth. Um, Twenty years old, he was. Uh, yeah, and he, <laughs> they were paying him. I can't remember what it was now. Was it three hundred a week or something like that? I it was hundreds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was, um, and they want the new contract it, was going to be a thousand or something like that, which was still you know chicken feed, really. Yeah. And the club didn't really want his agent. I mean, agent. Yeah, I'm not going to. I'll, I'll back off because I don't want to. I don't want to ruin that story. Let's instead. Um, let me let me end with a, an impossibly broad question for you, Ed. Um, so, um, what do you think the determining factors are for some of these players in regard of how they're remembered? I mean, because one of the themes, one of the unfortunate themes within the book, are is sort of the, the notion of the early pioneer who's forgotten. Um, and then has to be rediscovered by a later generation, perhaps not in their own country, but certainly um, in relation to their significance to the country where they made their name. What is, what's the key to the longevity? I mean, because it's, it, it seems so elusive, and it was elusive to a lot of these guys. Well, I think the fact it was elusive, but now that they've... We can't ask them, obviously, because they're not here, but I think most of them will be, would be very proud of the fact that they now are recognised of, you know... 
not by not most people don't know who who they are, but the fact that Arthur Wharton has a statue at the at St George's Park that you know is there for well as long as that's that's there is is a fantastic achievement by I mean that's one of my favourite chapters as well as the first chapter of the the lengths that Sean Campbell and Phil Vasali went to 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 you know make sure that this man was remembered is amazing. Didn't and that, Sean that was really my... bankrupt himself? Sorry? In, in the pro- didn't Sean Campbell nearly bankrupt yeah, himself in pursuit of that? He, he, yeah, he's, he's dedicated his, his entire life to it very much. I speak to him quite regularly still, and he's hoping that... Uh, I don't want to ruin it for him. I think I mentioned it in the book, but hopefully there's going to be a Netflix series about Arthur, which would be fantastic. But, you know, to, to have a, I, that, that was really my inspiration as well for, for doing the whole book, because these guys... Made sure that that um, people like Arthur Wharton and Paul Harrison, you know, made like sure like someone like Albert Johansson was properly remembered, and I wanted to kind of bring that into focus what they had done as well as well as doing it for lots of other players. I think it's really important uh, that people remember where how we got where we are now. Ed, thank you so much for coming on. I um like I I, I know I kind of have to say this, but I I do mean it in this instance. Oh, it was fascinating. Um, Thank it's, you. The book's called Made in Africa. Um, it's coming out June the 1st. Um, is that a sort of, um, it's presumably Waterstones and Amazon and um, everywhere else? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, and I think WH Smith. And I'm not sure over, if anyone's listening overseas, I think we're working on English language and maybe some translations, but we'll I'll, I'll let you know. Okay, brilliant. Well, when um, when the world returns to normal, we'll um, we'll get you into um, we'll get you into the studio, into the whatever the new TIFO studio looks like, and we'll um, we'll we'll <laughs> we'll do this properly. No, but thank great. you no, so thank much you for very coming. Much. On. It's been great. Inter- I'm really Absolutely. glad you enjoyed it. Hey, can I can yeah. I ask a question? <laughs> sure. Yeah. I know. Sorry. Can I just have? I've it's been, about yeah, time, Joe. I've it? really enjoyed listening <laughs> to this though, uh, which is no, yeah. I, I did think about asking a question early on, and then I just. Oh. Having having too much fun listening. This is a slightly uh, slightly off topic one, so I thought I'd wait until the end anyway, Ed. But mm. um, what did you think about Justin Fashioner being inducted into the, the sort of footballing Hall of Fame this year? Because his story's a little more complicated than people tend to remember. Mm. Well, it was really fantastic, and actually, um, <laughs> talking of lockdown, we were hoping to have an event at the football museum to sort of launch this book because of Albert Albert's in there, and also Arthur is in there. So, but that's a, but yeah, that's for Justin Fashion. It's good, great to see him in there. He's again somebody who is probably forgotten for the player that he was a little bit because of the you know, the, everything else that, that people remember him for. Um, so I but I was very, very pleased. And this was something that I was really interested in and maybe didn't give enough attention to in the book, which I would like to have given more perhaps is. is the diaspora, the African diaspora in, in, in the UK and, you know, people like Wilfred Zahar and the modern, more modern generation. But Fashionu and his brother uh, certainly belong to that and, and are part of, the, part of the story. Oh, fantastic. Well, listen, uh, I will echo what Seb said. Thanks so much for coming on. And uh, I can't wait to actually finish reading the book. <laughs> I'm going to oh, do that later this week. I, I think I will. I've read, I've read the first half of the first chapter, like, uh, you know, really prepared for this podcast. But uh, no, I'm very much, <laughs> very much looking forward to uh, continuing. Well, hopefully that. this has given you a few insights as to what to expect. It certainly whet my appetite, Ed. Excellent. Yeah. That's good to hear. Well, you know it. It's not, um, I mean, it, it's, it's a football book, but it's also not really a football That's book. That's perfect. Which is high praise, high praise, because it's, it's, um, it's so interesting. It's also quite damning. Um, anyone, anyone wanting sort of to feel all warm inside as a result of reading it? 
probably not, but I think it's really important. Well, and, um, ho- hopefully, eventually, yeah. No, I mean, certainly the early chapters, no. Yeah. But the way that it, the way that the story's ended, is good, isn't it? Because yeah, you know, it's it's proof of uh, of the ability can eventually get you where you want to be. Hopefully. All right, Ed. We're going to let you get back to your weird lockdown life. Yeah, like you too. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate that. Thanks, mate. Thank you very, very much. Bye.